in being able to play an instrument, um, it has a lot to do with the choice of songs. <laughs> and I have to say, I am so thankful that my wife chooses good songs. I could not be more thankful, and not just because she's my wife. <laughs> Praise God. Last week we said that there are times when we need to wake up from our sleep. Right? We began with that. The, 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 our alarm clock rings and it's time to get up. For our health, for our well-being, we cannot keep sleeping. <laughs> we got to get up. And the fact that you are here today indicates that you understand this. Right? You wouldn't be here if you didn't get that. But what we also said is that as important as it is to get up from our physical sleep, it is much more important that we get up and we are awake spiritually. We must awake spiritually. And it is not about our alarm clock going off. We are to be awake right now and we are to be awake today. <laughs> Today and right now is the moment to wake up spiritually. And I want to say that for God's people, when this was written, and when they would have been in Babylonian captivity, um, the danger that was threatening them and keeping them, in a sense, from waking up was that, or one of the major reasons, was because it was hard to understand and believed that God could fulfill his promises when they were in such a difficult situation. When they're in captivity and they could not see God at work. And so they wondered, God, could you save us and did you really want to save us, right? They were going through such difficult times. It would have been hard for them to believe in the comfort that God had promised them. It would have been hard for them to wake up from their slumber. And believe the promises of God. For us, I think it's slightly different for us. I think for us, we have so much comfort all around us that it's hard for us to find comfort in God. That it's hard for us to think we need any comfort. So we are not desperate for the comfort that comes from God. I think we have comfort coming out of our ears we have comfort all around us. We have comfort everywhere. So we wonder, why in the world do I need comfort? So we don't believe the promises of God. We don't rest in the promises of God. We don't, we don't long for the comfort that comes from God. And the same issue is the same issue <laughs> between Israel back then and us today. Even though it might look a little different, it might come from slightly different factors, the real bottom line problem is a failure to believe in God. So what does it mean to wake up? And let me remind you what it means to wake up. What it means to wake up is to believe the promises of God. To rest in the comfort that God has given to us. To understand and know the gospel and the implications of it on our lives. That's what it means to wake up. In Christ is all the comfort we will ever need. And by the way, that's what it means to live by faith. 
to live in the comfort, in the joy, in the happiness, in the delight of God, not the cheap happiness, not the cheap joy that the world offers, but the deep down confidence and peace that comes from God is what it means to be awake. And that's what we're talking about here in this passage. So we said this entire passage, beginning in Isaiah 51, can be divided into three sections, three calls to awake, awake. Remember, they didn't have exclamation marks in Hebrew, and so they would double things to make it for emphasis, to make it emphatic. And so, awake, awake, it's, it's emphatic here. And so we, we divided this section into three calls to awake, awake. And we said the first call to awake, awake, <laughs> awake emphatically, was a call from the people calling on God to wake. The people were calling on God to wake up. And what they meant by that was, God, come through for us. Um, make known your power. Do something amazing. Do something miraculous. Fulfill your promises. Bring us comfort by intervening into our circumstances. And then what does God say? The second and third awakes are as if God was saying, I am not the one that needs to wake up. <laughs> I don't need to wake up. You are the one who needs to wake up. I have given you all the comforts you could ever need. In me is everything you need for comfort. You need to wake up to the gospel. You need to wake up to the good news of who I am and what I have done. So we all need to wake up to the reality of God as our comforter. And today we're looking at the third awake, awake, to understand what it means to wake up to the reality of the gospel. So I'm going to tell you how we're going to divide this passage. First, you are to awake, you, you, I'm sorry, you know you're awake when you are, when you understand who you are in Christ. When you know who you are in Christ, that's the first two verses. You are awake when you're living with confident expectation that God will deliver you. Verses 3 through 6. You are awake when you are singing with the redeemed that your God reigns. Verses 7 through 10. You are awake when you are living as if you're not home yet, but you're still on pilgrimage. Verses 11 through 12. So first of all, you're awake when you recognize who you are because of Christ. Verses 1 through 2. Now, in the first two verses, it's speaking to Jerusalem. And I want to remind you, or maybe explain to you, that when it says Jerusalem, it's not talking about the walls of a city or some particular land. At least here it's not. It's talking about the people of God. That's what it's talking about. It's referring to God's people. And that is the place where God dwells, right? Among his people. And so how do we know that? And one of the ways we know that is because Isaiah interchanges between Jerusalem and the people of God seamlessly when he's referring to them. For instance, in the second part of verse 2, he says, O captive daughter of Zion. Instead of saying Jerusalem, he says, O captive daughter of Zion. Who is captive? It was the people of God. And so clearly he's talking about the people of God here. And he's using the image of Jerusalem to express who he's talking to. If God's people, whom Isaiah is writing to, 
were given the opportunity to assess themselves, what do you think they would say? Or how about if the Babylonians were given the opportunity to assess the people of God, what do you think they would say about them? Well, something like this, defeated, destroyed, devastated, facing the effects of the pollution of their sin, maybe weak, not strong, ugly, maybe in chains and servitude, sitting in the dust of defeat, right? What else would you say? <laughs> They're in captivity. They're in exile. They're in servitude. So here God calls them to wake up, not by seeing themselves as they would view themselves, not by seeing them as the captors would view them, but by seeing them as God sees them. God's people are called to appropriate their new identity that they have from God. God is saying that your identity is how I view you, not how you view you or how anybody else views you. <laughs> you see, who we are is how God views us more than anything else. Who you are is how God sees you. Now, that could be good news or that could be bad news depending on where you are in relationship with God, right? So more important than people's feelings about you, more important than what people say about you, good or bad, is how God views you. So how does God view his people? Well, we need to understand how God views his people, and that's what he's saying here, is he's telling us how God views them. And God says he views his people as being strong because of him. He views his people as being beautiful because of what God has done for them. He views his people as being holy, no longer corruptible. As God says, no, in, no corruption will ever enter a city again, <laughs> right? They are holy. As being free from captivity because of God's work. God has broken their shackles. God has freed them, right? As being royalty because of God. Shake off your dust, right? And arise, be seated, O Jerusalem. That's seated on their royal throne, right? <laughs> As royalty. So what is she therefore to do because of who she is? That's what we're asking, right? What is God calling her to do because of her identity? Well, she is to wake up by living in the reality of who she truly is. See, there's a appropriate clothing to put on because of who she is. There's appropriate chains to take off because of what has happened to her. She is to put on her strength because God has made her strong. Put on your strength, O Zion. This is God's strength, by the way. It's not her strength. It's God's strength that God has given to her. She is to put on her beautiful garments because God has made her beautiful. You know, if you're getting married, there are appropriate garments to put on, right? There's appropriate clothing to put on. If you're beautiful, you want to beautify yourself even more with beautiful clothing, right? I guess... And so that's exactly what God is saying here. Put on your beautiful clothing that's appropriate for you. No longer the ashes, no longer the, the garments that are beat up and corrupted. She is not to live in fear of being corrupted because God will not allow uncleanliness to enter her gates ever again. 
God declares her holy and righteous in his sight. She is to take off her shackles because God has broken them. Wouldn't it be ridiculous for her to stay in those shackles that God has broken and freed her from? Imagine if God said, you're free. He, he broke you out of prison. He uh, broke the shackles on you. But you said, I, I just want to hold these for a little while longer. I want to remain in my sin a little longer. I want to continue in my sin because I love my sin. But God says, I have freed you. I have delivered you from it. It no longer has you bound by it. You no longer have to serve it. You are free. That's what he says. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Don't stay in that prison. She used to shake off the dust from herself, right? Remember Babylon, just a few chapters before this, was to remove herself from her seat and get into the dust? Well, God's people are to remove themselves from the dust. They are to shake off the dust from themselves because she is no longer the scum of the earth. Shake yourself from the dust and rise. And then she is to be seated as those who are royalty. Be seated, O Jerusalem. One of the implications of this that I think we need to understand is that although Christ has done all the work, right? Although God does all the work in saving us, yet we are not passive observers of this salvation, are we? <laughs> you, know, you know that, that saying that people give that um, he's the, the, the pilot and I'm just seated? Well, how does that go? I don't even know. <laughs> I'm just the passenger, yeah, whatever. <laughs> He's the pilot, I'm the passenger, right? Well, that, that's not true at all, right? He does all the work, but we're to respond to his salvation, right? We're to respond to what he does. And notice that this is just response to victory. This is a celebration. You know, dusting, getting off the dust from you is not working your salvation. It's rejoicing, it's, it's coming into, it's delighting into the reality of what Christ has already done for you. Taking off the shackles is not work, working your salvation. It's entering into the joy and the delight and the victory that Christ has accomplished for you. God's work is done. We are to enter into what God has already done for us. And she must respond to what God has done. So this means we work out our salvation, what God has already done within us. And we do this by living in an appropriate way to who we truly are at this time. Just as uh, someone who is out of the graves, you know, imagine someone who is dead and had grave clothes on. You know, he's out of the graves. He's, he's alive now. Miraculously, he's alive. We don't continue to go on with those grave clothes, right? That makes absolutely no sense. That's ridiculous, right? You take them off, you're alive. So if we're to live right, we must understand who God says we are in him. You're not primarily whatever your occupation is. You're not primarily whatever your role is in your family. Yes, you are those things. I'm not primarily a pastor. You and I are new creations if we're in Christ. You and I are free from our chains. You and I are servants of God. You and I are children of God. If you're in Christ, that's who you are more than anything else. And because of that, you can be a better dad, a better mom. And you will be a better dad and a better mom in those other things that you do as well. If you are awake, you'll pursue to become who you are in Christ. 
So the question for you is, are you becoming who you are in Christ? Do you see a noticeable change in your life? You are awake if you are living with confident expectation that God will deliver you. And we see that in verses 3 through 6. You see, it really doesn't make sense for God's people to live this way that God has told them to live, right? To live who they are, if there's no basis or reason for it, right? There, there must be a basis and a reason for us to live this way. I mean, if you're not delivered from the shackles, then there's no reason for you to live as one who's been delivered from your shackles, right? If you're not getting married, then you're probably not going to want to put on a wedding dress, right? There must be a reason for this. And so God gives the reason here why God's people must do these things, right? And the basis and the reason is this. Because first of all, God can deliver his people. He is able to deliver his people. We see that in verses 3 through 5. And not only that, but God wants to deliver his people. He is motivated to deliver his people. And we see that in verse 5. So the first question is, can God deliver his people? And we need to know this. We need to know whether God can deliver his people, right? If we're to live in the reality of what God has done. So, first of all, God says, I can deliver you. I have the right to deliver you. And he says, the reason is, because I have sold you for nothing. Now, isn't that an interesting argument? <laughs> what does he mean in verses 3 through 5 when he says, I have sold you for nothing? He says, you are sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. What does that mean? Well, what it appears like God is saying here is that I did not owe anyone anything when I sold you. I did not pay anyone anything when I sold you. Therefore, I can take you back without paying anything. <laughs> I am not a debtor to anyone. There's no third person involved here that God owes anything to. So if he sold them for nothing, he can take them back for nothing. God wasn't forced to hand over Judah to his oppressors because he owed them something. <laughs> and the reason he didn't owe them anything is because he's never a debtor or a creditor to anyone. Instead, he handed them over with his own volition and his own free will. Therefore, they are still his and he can still take them back. And this guarantees that God can deliver his people. She is still rightfully and lawfully the Lord's property to do what he wants with. He can bring them back on his own free will. Based solely on his own willingness and desire to bring them back. So this brings us to the next question. Does God want to save them? Is God interested in saving them? Is he motivated to save them? Well, we know God can save them, but the biggest question at this point is, does God want to? And there are two reasons for why God wants to save his people, and we find this everywhere throughout the scriptures. This is consistent everywhere you go. The first one is because he feels the pain of the, of the, of the struggle that his people are going through, who are in relationship with God. He cares for his people. But secondly... For the honor and the praise of his name. For the vindication of the honor of his name. Those are the things that motivate God and they are not separable from each other. <laughs> They're both, in a sense, one and the same. You see, 
It is important to know what moves God. What does God really care about? You see, God is moved by what is most important. God is moved by what is the supreme reasons to be moved by. What moves him, what motivates his heart is the supreme motivations in life. And we need to understand what those things are because that is an indication of how right we are with God when we are moved by the same things. When we are moved by the things that move God, it it indicates that we are in the right place with God. And so we need to know what moves God. And so first of all, what moves God to save is the anguish of his people. He hears the cries of his people. He hears the cries of those who are in a favorable relationship with him. And how could he not? How could he not? He hears their cries. He hears you when you're feeling the anguish and the burden of this world upon your back. And if the leaders are wailing, as it says they are here, how much more are all the people wailing (laughs) among his people? God cares for his people and he is their savior. He's aware of their suffering. What also moves God is the honor of his name. God will vindicate his name whenever it is despised. You need to understand that God always, always, always vindicates his name. The language here indicates that his name is continually. Notice that continual nature of it. Constantly, continually under contempt. And the question is why? Why in the world would God's name be under contempt? What's the reason for that? And the answer is quite obvious here. Because God's people looked like their God was small and incapable of delivering them. What happened to God's people made God, in the eyes of the people around them, look very small and incapable. Maybe a mini-God, right? But not a great God. I mean, the other gods of Babylon, the other gods around them were much bigger and stronger. And that's what the nations would have assumed by what happened to God's people. It seems like God was unable to deliver his promises. His, His own reputation was at stake. Now, the allegations are not true at all. God didn't deliver his people over to Babylon because he was weak. He did it actually as a sign of power, if you understand what's really going on. But he will always vindicate his name. God will always vindicate his name. What we need to understand is that the vindication of God's name and the salvation of his people are inseparable. They're one and the same. God's concern for the, for the, the pain and the struggle of his people is not to be separated from his concern for the honor and the vindication of his name. These concerns always work together. They are bound up together. You see, the salvation of his people is the vindication of his name. And you might ask, how in the world could that be? And the answer is saving them shows his power and his might in fulfilling his promises. It shows that God is true. It vindicates his name. If God does not save his people, then it's shameful for his name. But if God vindicates his people, it shows the honor and the glory and the greatness of his name. It vindicates him. This is why God's people can rest assured that God will deliver them. The chief and primary purpose is not the well-being of his people. You understand that? And it's important that that is true. (laughs) The chief and primary purpose of God is the glory and the honor and the vindication of his name. And that means you will be saved if you're in Christ. That means there is no possibility that you will ever be put to shame. Because God will vindicate his name. God says, therefore, that he will vindicate his name by saving his people in verse 6. 
Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. So, God says he will vindicate his name by saving his people. And he will do it by showing his powerful strength. And he will show the truth of who he really is. And so God proves over and over again in Isaiah, if you remember the arguments that have been being made over and over again, this is just consistent, that unlike the idols, the false gods, God actually fulfills his word. And notice, notice the word here in verse 6. Um, Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who save, that it is I who deliver, that it is I who redeem. No, it's I who speak. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that kind of strange? God said, they will know that it is I who speak. God is showing them that he saves. And one way of understanding this is perhaps God is saying, I will deliver you from Babylon, and you will know that I will ultimately deliver you. (laughs) Because it confirms my word to you. My word is being confirmed that I always deliver on my word. That I always fulfill my word. Therefore, the greater deliverance will come true. I will fulfill every word that I say. Unlike the false gods that are all around here that cannot do anything good, right or wrong, I am the one who fulfills every word that I give. This means there's only one barrier preventing us from being saved. God doesn't owe anyone anything. (laughs) We don't owe anyone else anything, ultimately. You know, God is not paying off some debt that we owe to Satan. God is not paying off some debt he owes to any enemies. We owe a debt to God. We have offended his right, his righteousness, his justice. And therefore, God is rightfully angry at us. And the offended justice must be satisfied. God is the offended party. And we must be made right with him. And the good news is next week will be all about that. Next week we will look at how Christ is the substitute. He is the only one who can take on himself the wrath of God. He is the only one who can bring us into the presence of God. He's the only one who can deal with the problem that we have. That is the wrath of God. Because we've offended him. So my question is, are you awake Are you living with confident expectation that God will save you? God has, listen to these words, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1 verse 13. Therefore we can say with Paul, the Lord will rescue us from me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 2 Timothy 4.18 And we are therefore to join Abraham in saying, and looking forward to the city that has foundation, whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 6, verse 10. You are thirdly awake when you are singing with the choir of the redeemed, Our God Reigns. Verses 7 through 10. In Exodus 15, if you read that chapter, you will read a song of the redeemed. God had just delivered his people from Egypt. Um, Certain death, certain destruction, there was no hope for them. God parted the waters, amazing, delivering them from captivity of the Egyptians. And then what they did was they sang this song. And we can read the song, right? And we can even sing the song, can't we? And I won't do it for your good. But there is a sense 
to which only those who were there could truly sing the song, right? Only those who were delivered can truly sing that song. You can sing the right words, but only they could truly sing it who were delivered. This song would have been created by their experience, right? The song was created out of the experience. It was given birth through the deliverance that God had brought them through. It was experienced firsthand through the reality of God delivering his people for an impossible situation. In a similar way, the song, Our God Reigns, that we're looking at here, can only be truly sung by certain people, those who have experienced already the redemption and deliverance from God. This song does not merely require the right words, although it does, but it also requires the experience of having been delivered. This song is given birth through our deliverance. You might also say that those who are delivered only sing the song as well as they are awake and alert to the reality of their deliverance. If we forget about it, if other things become more important, if it becomes kind of like secondary in our lives, then the song kind of dwindles down, doesn't it? It becomes not quite as loud. (laughs) We don't sing it as loud. We don't sing it as passionately. It needs to be fresh and real in our minds if we're to sing it rightly. Only then can we sing with the vigor and the passion and the might that this song deserves, right? So the song itself is birthed through the victorious return of our king. The song begins with a city who's in great distress, right? Now, perhaps it's under siege. We don't know, but that would have made sense. Um, the city is, is in great distress. They're, they're, they're fearing and wondering Is there any hope for us? They're in bondage. They're helpless. But on the walls of the city, there are these watchmen looking out for some word of comfort, some word of hope, right? And by the way, this isn't referring to literal Jerusalem because it was in shambles at the time. (laughs) It was in shambles. They're waiting for some kind of information, some kind of new hope. Suddenly, they see, the, they see feet that are coming. <laughs> they see someone who's running towards them. And, and you wonder, what does this mean? What does this runner mean? And the good news that they see as the runner comes closer is that he is not just running. <laughs> he's dancing. He's skipping. He's happy. He's excited. He's bearing good news. And that's what we read here. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Now, a beautiful feet are not a comment on feet, are they? Uh, feet are probably the most smelly part of the body. My feet can be smelled from miles away. So feet are not the issue here. What makes the feet beautiful is the news that they are bringing, right? There is wonderful news that makes these feet beautiful, <laughs> So what is the good news that the runner is bringing? What does it mean? The good news that the Lord is coming back in victory. He therefore reigns. And because he reigns, his people therefore have peace, goodness, and salvation. Listen to the words. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This message is that God has defeated every enemy. And you know what that means? If you've defeated every enemy, it means you reign. (laughs) That's what it means. It means you reign. 
The message therefore means for God's people, those who are under his authoritative reign, willingly and are under his favor, what would that mean? What would that mean if your king has gained victory over every enemy of yours and is coming back? Is that good news? It means peace, news of happiness, and salvation. There's no more war. Everything is right. Your God has delivered you from your enemy. You are no longer condemned. Your sins no longer hang over you. You have freedom from bondage. You can fulfill the purpose that God has created you to do. This is good news. Peace, happiness. And the, good, and the news of the coming victorious God is what compels this joyous song to be born. And as it travels, the song grows louder and stronger and builds up. Do you notice that? In verses 8 through 9, at first the news reaches only the watchmen and they begin to sing. Together there's this choir that begins to build up as they begin to sing of the good news. But then as the song begins to be heard, more and more people throughout Jerusalem begin to sing it. Until the whole city is singing. All of God's people are singing together. Just imagine all the redeemed with one voice shouting out the most glorious song. Even in the waste places, which I just think means the, 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 peop, the places that were destroyed, the people and their lives who were destroyed, even they are now singing because they have victory from God. Everywhere, everyone is singing who is a part of the victory of the king. If you're redeemed, then this is your song as well. This is your song to sing. Your God reigns and he's coming back for you. What greater comfort can ever be found than this? We should all sing this song. And God's people will sing this song because it's not optional for us to sing it. You know, some of us might sing it louder than others, but every believer will sing this song. There is a song that has been born in your heart and you will sing it. After God's people were delivered from Egypt, when they stood on that other side, and they saw their enemies crushed under the water, <laughs> they sang with joy, didn't they? But I want you to understand that that is a shadow. That is a mere shadow of the song that we are singing. I mean, can you imagine them standing on the other side of the water and, like, doing nothing? Oh, that's cool. That's neat. We're that makes absolutely no sense. You have to have missed it or be dead or something, Right? That victory was a shadow. We have a greater song to sing. We have a greater deliverance. That was only picturing the greater deliverance that God was going to bring. And we have that greater victory. You should sing louder than they did. Because we don't have a shadow but the substance. And so this is true with all God's people. Now there's something surprising about God's victory here. This victory is not just for the Jews only but for the benefit of the whole world. Notice in verse 10, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The world will see the unveiling of the awesome power of God. Really interesting words here, the uh, um, bearing of his arm. And I never, I never heard this before, but apparently when someone was going to go out to fight, they would take off their cloak, their outer cloak, that would be um, covering their arm so that they would have freedom to wield their arm with a sword 
and fight off their enemies. And so God is saying, I am unbearing my arm so that I can defeat the enemies and destroy them. And the whole world is going to see it. The whole world. What an awesome thought. And the world did see God restore his people, right, when he delivered them from Babylon. There was a sense between, in that all the nations saw the unveiling of God's, unbearing of God's arm. But that's only a picture of a much greater unveiling of the powerful arm of God in saving his people. God displayed his power in the most surprising way, didn't he? Through a cross, through dying on a cross and rising from the dead, he displayed his power over all of our enemies. What, in a, what a surprising, amazing way to show power and defeat everyone who stood against him. To us who are being saved, this is the power of God for salvation. And the world is seeing it, and the world has seen it. Praise God for his powerful work of salvation. And I pray that your eyes, when you look at the cross, when you see Jesus who went to that cross, I pray that your eyes see the power of God there. Because that's what it means to be saved. The world thinks it's foolishness. In the sense that it has nothing of value to gain from a crucified Savior except maybe some sentimental thoughts. right? But for those who are being saved, they look at the cross and they see the power of God for salvation. They see power in that. This means that God is his own greatest witness of his name. His victory will be the means of the message that will comfort the world and all who believe. So we are also to be those who bring the good news, aren't we? We are to bring forth the good news that God is already bringing forth. <laughs> and how well we sing the song has nothing to do with your voice, praise God, but everything to, know, to do with how well you know and understand and cherish the gospel. If you are not singing, you're either sleeping or worse, you're dead. Sing loudly, sing passionately to your neighbors at work, to your fellow church members, to other believers. Sing, sing, sing. <laughs> sing the gospel everywhere you go because that is what we've been called to do with our lives, to praise and worship God. And we do that by singing the good news that our God reigns. You're awake, finally, when you're living as if you're not home yet, but on pilgrimage home, verses 11 through 12. What were God's people supposed to do with the message of victory when it reached their ears? They're now to begin their journey home from Babylon. Don't stay in the condemned city. It says here, 11, notice the double emphasis here. Depart, depart, go out from there. God emphatically orders his people to leave. Now, obviously, God's people couldn't just get up and leave Babylon, right? <laughs> when he said this, it was impossible for them to do that, right? They're still in captivity. And it would have taken time for Cyrus to tell them, you can leave at your own leisure, <laughs> right? It's kind of what he said, actually. So we are rather supposed to understand Babylon is standing for the world and its system. The world and its system that opposes God, we are to be in the world, but not of it, right? We are to be on our journey in our pilgrimage home. This is not our home. We're not to live as if this is our home. We are to get up and start going on our way home. From the moment our eyes are awakened, we are on pilgrimage to our final destination. I want us to stop for just two seconds. I know we don't have a lot of time, but I, I want to help you understand something here. If, we were, if this was a linear explanation of what was happening to Israel 
we would be the most confused people. For one moment, we see that they're under siege. And the next moment, they're supposed to head home. <laughs> and um, everything in between. Right? And, or, for instance, first the runner's coming with good news that the king is coming. And then notice in verse 8, it's actually God who is coming. <laughs> and so the point here is not that all this is linear. The point is that these are images to help us understand our salvation. This isn't supposed to be a historical explanation of this happened and this happened and this happened. This is supposed to be pictures that help us understand the greatness of our Savior and his redemption that he has accomplished. Just so you're not confused at the timeline here. So how are you to go about with this pilgrimage home? God gives us instructions for how to conduct our journey home. First, they are to go out and touch no unclean thing. On their way out, they're not to touch anything that's unclean because they're bearing the vessels of God. These are the priests for God. These are those who serve God, and so they are not to touch anything unclean. They're supposed to be holy and righteous as they truly are on their way out. As they go out, they're not to leave in haste. What does it mean to leave in haste? It means to be scurrying somewhere because you're afraid you're not going to make it. You might not make it out. You've got to get there quickly. Like you're, you're in a, a rush to get out of there. Some kind of upheaval or panic or pressure to remove yourself, right? So why should you not panic in haste? And there's very good reason. Listen to the four here. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Because God will go before you and behind you. God is with you. He will take care of you. God loves and cares for his people. He is bound to their well-being. His own name is bound up in our salvation he will go before us and he'll go behind us. Therefore, live holy lives. Begin your pilgrimage home. God will take care of you. He is with you and he loves you. And therefore, we can leave fearlessly, trusting in our God that he'll take care of us. So what does this mean for us? When God delivers us, there is a real life change in us. There's a real work that God is doing. There's no one who is saved that God does not change. And God is not in the process of changing them. We are to live our lives to reflect the glory of God. That's why we were created. To reflect the glory of God with our lives. And he has recreated us into a new creation. So that we can begin to be the people that God has made us to be. To proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our lives should reflect the good kingdom of God that we are a part of. We should love others, live godly lives, live with hope, live with joy. You should be the most loving people to your neighbors. You should be the most loving people to your fellow Christians. You should be the most loving people to your family, even your enemies, as strange as that sounds. If you are God's child and you're awake, then you will live like you're going home. Israel had to leave Egypt. The exiles had to flee Babylon. We must leave this country for our true home. I have had throughout my life a hard time staying awake, both physically and spiritually. The biggest problem, though, is not my physical ability to stay awake, and I have struggled with that, <laughs> but it is mostly spiritually staying awake. Right? Do you have this trouble? 
Well, I know that you have this trouble because you are very much like me, even though you might not want to admit it. (laughs) We are all from the same mold. And what makes it extra hard for us to stay awake are the comforts in this life, aren't they? One of the biggest problems in America, and I said this at the beginning, but I'm going to say it again because I think it's really important for us to hear. One of the biggest problems for Americans is that we have so much comfort. The comforts of this world can make us think we don't need God's comfort. Or, or maybe, let me say, not that badly. We don't need it that badly. We are often not really desperate for God until the comforts of this world are lost. Can I say something that might sound really insensitive, but I think it's very much true. Sometimes it's good when God takes away our comforts. Sometimes it's good when there's politically things that we don't like that go on around us. Sometimes it's good when we become a little unhealthy, (laughs) Um, when things come around us that we just can't control. And we don't like those things at all, and we pray against them, right? But sometimes God, I think, wants to remind us that we need the comfort that comes from him. And he wants to shake us loose from the comforts of this world. And what else is going to wake God's people up? If this doesn't wake us up, then what will? What will wake us up? If you're not praying, if you're not throwing yourself at the comforts of God, then we have to wonder, what does God have to do to wake us up? (laughs) That's a scary thought, isn't it? So I say this to you as much as to me. We need to wake up. (laughs) Wake up to the only real comfort that only God can give. Wake up for your joy for your hope, for your spiritual health, and for the glory of God. And this is, is this not what Jesus said when he said, I have come that you may have life and you may have it more abundantly. He wasn't just talking about the world to come. He was talking about today, right here, and right now. He was saying, I have come that you might have life today. And that's not about our circumstances. That's about the comfort of the gospel who gives us every comfort we could ever need in this life, even when everything is falling up, falling apart around us. If you're outside of God's favor, you are not sleeping, you are dead. And there is none of these comforts that belong to you. You don't need to wake up, you need life. You're in a miserable condition and you need to run to Christ for safety. So let me leave right there. Run to Christ for safety. For in him is all the comfort you could ever need or ever want. More comfort than we could ever imagine. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the good news that in this world there is nothing, nothing we can truly find for comfort. Lord, we are hopeless, we are lost, but Lord, you have brought comfort to us. You have brought the gospel to us, the good news that our God reigns. And Lord, we want to sing with our hearts these truths, but Lord, sometimes our hearts just don't sing them as we should. Lord, I pray that you'd help us. I pray for the remaining time we have on this earth that you would awaken us to the song of the redeemed. Awaken us to sing that our God reigns. Lord, help us to go around singing everywhere we go. Maybe not literally singing, but may it be heard by the words we say, by the actions we take, that our God reigns. And Lord, may may you give us opportunities to proclaim the good news of the gospel that our God reigns wherever we go this week. And Lord, may it be so in our hearts, so in our minds. May we be so in love with this great news of the gospel.
that we can't help but sing it and proclaim it wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen.